be gentle with yourself. You are no less than a child of the universe. You know, if we can at first be gentle with ourselves, and there's the invitation to be gentle with others. And that this is the time um, for gentleness in the wiry, angsty energy that is so understandable. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and I'm so happy to welcome you to Hashivenu, a podcast about Jewish teachings on resilience. I'm really blessed today to welcome my, my old friend, my dear friend, and my beloved colleague, Rabbi Joshua Lesser, as our guest today. Josh is the rabbi of Congregation Beit Haverim in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, a wonderful Reconstructionist affiliate. He is also the founder of Sojourn, the Southern Jewish Resource Network for Gender and Sexual Diversity. And Josh is also the founder of a really interesting Facebook initiative responding to COVID-19 that we'll get into in the course of the podcast. But that's also got a lot of words to it. So before I talk longer, I just want to stop, pause and welcome you to the podcast, Josh. Well, thank you. I've, I've been excited that Hashivenu exists and really grateful and humbled to be a part of it today. It's great to have you on, on it. I know that you've been a guest on some of our other podcasts, including pretty recently Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations, which is such a, an, a, a great resource, both the website and the podcast. And I just want to share with our listeners that Josh has been a partner and a collaborator in many, many different uh, elements of my uh, rabbinate over the last almost 30 years. We um, started in rabbinical school together in 1993. And indeed, he was a major conversational partner with me as I was conceptualizing Hashivenu. Um, so it's really, it's overdue and really wonderful to have you on the, on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. Um, I want to start off with that Facebook uh, piece that I alluded to in the introduction. So in early March, Joshua founded a group on Facebook called Multi-Faith, now it's had a, a, na- a couple names, but it's currently known as Multi-Faith Clergy and Spiritual Communal Responses to COVID-19. And this is a group, so you, so you get a sense of it. It's a kind of closed group, not private, but a closed group. Uh, you have to apply to get in to, to talk through for spiritual leaders from across faith traditions what is going on. And it has had just exponential growth. Um, and so as of today, and I'll date it because I, as I suspect the growth will continue, as of March 23rd, it has a, v- a very significant population. I'll let you to take over and, and explain more about where sure. it's Sure. You know, it's interesting. At first, the, the first name was just clergy and spiritual communal responses. And, um, and that was fine for the first couple days because it was largely my network of people. And then some of and so it was a very Jewish for maybe two days. It was predominantly rabbis who came on. And then um, as the dam has broken in a lot of ways, um, certainly Christians around the world have found it. And we wanted to make sure that it, it was a multi-faith space. And so we put that in the title um, to make that change. And so, you know, the funny thing is, I thought, well, you know, I know some resourceful clergy all around the country. And so maybe I would cultivate a group of 200 of my close friends and connections. And I had, I didn't think I realized um, what a need this was. And, um, and then when I saw the need really quickly, 
I, I was like, let's do what we can to make it accessible to as many people as possible. And that um, has turned into over 5,400 people. In, in the space of less than two weeks. In the space of less than two weeks. Yeah. yeah. And so I think, I mean, it speaks exactly to the, to the need uh, for, for space to process and to figure out how to lead and how to offer sustenance. There's such existential angst out there, some of which we as clergy share, some of which we just hold, and yet we have to do it without some of our critical tools, which include convening and sitting close by and putting a hand on someone's hand or an arm around someone. So, so much pivoting going on and, and such a need to understand how to do it. Yes. And, I, you know, I think that I conceptualize broadly at times, and sometimes that could be good, sometimes that could be challenging. And for now, I really have wanted this group to be both about the practical resources. So like, how do you use Zoom or what are the platforms to um, really looking at what are some of the ethical and moral decision-making frameworks mm -hmm. right. that we can bring to some of the hard questions. And I think it's a moving target because in the beginning, the questions were about, do we stay open? Do we stay closed? As more places are closing, I think that we're in this new frontier. How important is it to reach people who don't have technological aspects? What about the homeless that many communities serve? And so, and I imagine that we will be um, sadly dealing with how do we bring in our grieving rituals? And we've already started discussing it. And then as clergy, we have um, really, because of how much we care about our community. And the one thing that I want to say is the most heartening thing that I've seen is our kind of clergy community want to serve our people so well. And we're balancing our own anxieties, our own limitations, what our family needs are. And so I wanted to create one of the safest places where people can put their worries forward, can feel a sense of solidarity. Because, you know, as we know, not only is that important for resilience, but that when you look at surveys, clergy are one of the groups of people who feel the most alone, ironically. Yeah, yeah, right. And do you have evidence that this is helping to mitigate against that isolation? Yes. I mean, there have been a number of clergy who say this is the first page they check in the morning, mm. um, that there is a way where people have put out posts that say, you know, I'm really afraid that my community is not going to financially be able to survive this. I feel so alone. And then there's this outpouring. And one of the most profound um, posts was by a humanist. And so I would say, um, as a reconstructionist, as a, as a cousin to humanism, um, you know, he put out that he did not have a place to really be as transparent with his community as he wanted because he was filled with such dread and such despair. And in great detail, he, he narrated all of um, his fears and his anxieties, which rang true. It's one of the posts that's had the most responses. Wow. And so, um, so many people said, thank you. It allows me to say these things too. Yeah. 
And, you know, one of the things that for me, kind of the beauty is it allowed me to invite a little bit of what I would call kind of a reconstructionist theology into the um, conversation. And I said to him, I, there's nothing about your outpouring that I wouldn't change. Thank you for allowing us to witness and accompany you. And what I know for me is, is that when I find myself on the ledge of despair, I try to cultivate two values, the value of humility and the value of mystery. Mm-hmm. And that for me, there are ways where I can get caught up in that I think I know it all. I've got it all figured out. I'm a rational, thoughtful person. I believe in science. And so that there is a way where I can feel like if the world is going down, I I can see how that happens. And I have to remember that there is so much at force that is larger than me that I don't know what is happening. And while I don't believe in magical thinking, I do believe in mysterious thinking. Mm -hmm. And that there is a way where I can lean into the mystery with that sense of humility, that there may be things happening. And you know, my understanding is, is that there are drugs being tested right now that people didn't think would be able to be tested as soon. And, and so while I don't want to give any kind of false hope in any moment, I think closing people's door to hope um, is also not helpful um, as well, personally. And I don't want my humility, I, I don't want my lack of humility to kind of steal that hope from folks. It's great. I mean, I, I think I have two thoughts. One is just about the challenge for us as, as clergy. We are often asked to be non-anxious presences, that that's one of them. I remember when we started rabbinical school, and I remember thinking, how will I know what to say in the face of loss or in the face of fear? And learning that so much of it was not about, there aren't answers, there aren't words. It is so much about accompaniment. And that, and that accompaniment should be non-anxious. So how do we cultivate that and also make space for our own anxieties? It's not that, like, how do we do it in a way that isn't, doesn't just suppress it and so that it eats away at us? So that space you've created. And, and the other thing is just I love that, that um, the mystery and the humility. The, the, uh, I, I, I've been uh, thinking a lot about the, the classical reconstructionists, the folks who helped to bring, to create our movement a hundred years ago, 80 years ago, they talked a lot about harmonizing religion and rationalism. And I've been thinking so much about it because I think, well, the rationalism that I'm really committed to right now is data. You know, when we have, yes. people, you know, like, like I believe in science. Right. And, that, and then the religious piece is about, uh, you know, that the fact that there is something transformative about being in community and being in connection and that it does lift it. Like it's, it's all that, some of it is just that, um, the exponential component and then that larger mystery with a capital M. And that's that, for us at, at this moment in time, that's the harmonization of religion and rationalism. Absolutely. And, you know, I, that sense of connection, I had a congregant write me who is a physician, who is very much in that rational sense. And, you know, he said, well, he has always loved Beit Chavirim. He never loved it more than this past Friday night when we hosted our first online service. And he said, it was so amazing to him that we could be this distant, but he never felt closer. And I think that, you know, those are the kinds of stories that then clergy go onto this page and share. 
and see that it's possible. And so in, in many ways, the ability for me to be that, and I don't actually use the word non-anxious presence, which I think I even learned from this page. I use a less anxious presence. <laughs> I totally I wanted, take the correction. I mean, no, I mean I, you know, I, we all were trained this way. And I think that, you know, I want to model for my community that we have a little bit of anxiety. Um, I really try to modulate it. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I'm able to stand in front of my community on a Friday night, less anxious, knowing that I have 5,400 clergy that are supporting my best efforts and are working hard to do the same. It's pretty powerful. Yeah, that's very wonderful. And that makes me think about Brene Brown's teachings on vulnerability, that that reframing from non-anxious to less anxious. That, you know, I think that the... Um, that one implication of the non-anxious is that there can be nothing and, and you know, you, you'd have, you have to be perfect as opposed to being human, being, being bringing yeah. your full self, like understanding that there's a role that you're playing and that you have to inhabit it. You, you, like, the, 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 yeah, but you have to have it with integrity. And some of that is about, you know, being, being vulnerable, being anxious. And I have to say that if anyone from my community ends up listening, that you are the one who brought up Brene Brown because they would make fun of me because I would, I would bring her. But, you know, to me, there is this kind of wisdom about what she calls wholeheartedness. Yeah. And I have felt like, and vulnerability is a key part of that. Mm-hmm. It is the um, cornerstone of resilience. And what mm-hmm. I've wanted to do is bring a sense of wholeheartedness into this moment. And that means standing with that sense of um, courage, not because I don't have fear, but in spite of the fear. And to be transparent, I spoke to a group of our colleagues on a webinar and I broke down and cried. Mm -hmm. And a part of me would have felt shame about that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm in this moment where actually it's okay. Like, you know, and, and rather than have to prove myself as some superhuman, particularly to my colleagues, which is in the past. And I would say this was a, a multi, in a multi-denominational rabbinic group. Sometimes within my rabbinic um, reconstructionist colleagues, maybe crying is a little bit more, um, you know, we create that space, I think. Mm-hmm. But rather than feel shame, I wanted, you know, I wanted to be able to use this as a teaching moment that, you know, this will sometimes happen. And I just was so moved to be in the presence of all of us wrestling and struggling Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, so deeply. And then for our community to see that we can do that and still be present to me is a really powerful message that we can all learn from. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Well, we can tell the members of Beit Haverim that I, I, I'm a huge fan of Renee Brown. And in fact, this year, on every year on Yom Kippur, I choose a book to try to read as th- throughout the day when I get home from Kol Nidre. And Renee Brown was my was my teacher this year. I think she really just teaches so so much about about vulnerability and wholeness. I think it's really essential learning, especially right now, especially as everything is being undone and as we're going to have to figure out how to remake it in, in, in the future. Uh, but right now we're, we're just in the, we're in the whirlwind, I think. So. Right. Well, I, you know, I love that you talked about the whirlwind because you know, so much of my rabbinic leadership has been about 
the Elijah teaching that um, about where is that um, center, like that there is a way where we can connect to the small, still voice within us, that it's in the, you know, that there may be storm around us, but that we may be able to still ourselves. It's why I've grown with my contemplative practice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I also feel like, you know, one of the things that I do want at some point down the road to be known with our group um, explicitly is, is that this group was founded by a queer Jewish person, queer Jewish rabbi, um, because it is that sense of a lot of my journey has been about whirlwinds and how to find my center, that there is a lot that was not obvious about how one might be um, a faith leader in a time of, you know, I, I was a rabbi during the time of the AIDS epidemic. I was a rabbi when um, schools, seminaries had not thought fully through how to make sure that we were employed or what did it mean in terms of what differences might be able to be supported. And so while it was a bumpy road at times, it really has been a place where I am committed from that place for an inclusion and an accessibility for all people. And that's why I wanted in some ways to create this group. I think I know a lot about safety. Mm -hmm. I certainly don't know everything, but I really want um, folks to know, I've been thinking this thought that if some triumphalism comes up, which there's been very little in the group, that I want people to know regardless of how they identify that um, it's our commitment to inclusion that allows them to be there, yeah. not somebody else. That's you know, often true. I feel like I'm included out of somebody's grace. Mm -hmm. I want to say that everybody else, mm -hmm. you know, that we all have to operate this way. That's really great. I want to actually uh, pivot a little bit to the AIDS crisis and, and like and lessons from that moment. But beforehand, I just want to pause a second on practice when you talked about committing more deeply into your um, contemplative practices. And I think that, think it's so essential. I think it's essential at any point, but especially at a time of transition, at a time of disruption, there's an opportunity for us to double down into our practices. Um, the special episode of Hashivena that we recorded focuses in on a breath, breath practices tied to Elohai Neshama. And there's all, all kinds of teaching, all kinds of learning available about uh, daily practices to support meditation or, or yoga from, from, from a Jewish place or, or not. I, I feel like that is what, that those are some of the things that we can count on at, at, at moments of incredible disruption and that those are, th those practices deepen our capacity to respond to the disruption. Right. You know, as someone who's a practitioner of Musar, which is the Jewish, uh, ethical, moral teachings of how we want to, to be in the world based on spiritual values. There's a, before you even get to any of the values, there's this aspect of which is this internal inquiry. And for me, that has been such an important part of my development. It's what my meditation supports. But I want to know when I'm starting to feel out of balance. And I now can begin to 
understand the energy that's rising within me and mm-hmm. that something like the breath practice that you talked about with Ella Haida Shema could be something that settles me. Mm-hmm. I know that I need to return to my breath mm-hmm. when I start feeling that. And that has to do with, um, I think now six or seven years of practicing Musar, which I'm not even talking about a value. I'm just talking about the importance of self-reflection and knowing who I am and then knowing which practice might support me. Right. And the beauty of our tradition is, is that we have many different practices. Right. And the beauty of being a reconstructionist is, is that I don't feel locked into a single practice because dogmatically it's dictated. I actually have the invitation and it's the invitation I want to send to my people and beyond, which is, is that look for the practices that resonate with your own spirit, with your own ability. But I urge, uh, this is my message all the time, I urge my folks, find a practice. Right. I think that's exactly and- I remember when I started meditating many, many years ago, and, and my boy, my practice has been very erratic, though... After, after the 2016 election, I remember saying to, to Christina, to, saying to my wife, I really have to get my meditation practice in order or I will die. I think I yeah. might die. And I, and I try really hard not to use hyperbolic language like that. And I heard it and I said to her, I don't actually think I'm exaggerating here. I think this will be life preserving. And so it has been much more robust in the last couple of years. But when I started, it was many, many years ago, uh, back when we were still in school and I I was really struggling. So this late nineties and I was really struggling. And I remember thinking, well, like even if I, if I, everything felt up in the air and it was totally personal. It was not the larger world was pretty intact at that moment. But I remember thinking, even if I just do five minutes of meditation a day, at least I can count on that. I might not be able to count on anyone or anything or, you know, but I can count at least five minutes every day. I'm going to be meditating. And that was like an incredibly, important anchor for for a while so yes absolutely and i think that um you know in this moment and god forbid if there are future moments having had that experiencing of it sustaining you it's something that you can return to right and so if people feel like that oh i can't do something because i haven't done it in so long i want to really invite people to try to connect. It's one of the reasons why we, um, as a synagogue, have a, a weekday practice now at 8.45 we, in the mornings. We never used to do that. But really, in, the, in this moment, we really want there to be a place where people can tune in. It's a 15-minute it's a practice. Right, right. Um, I it's think a little so bit I've... of chanting yeah. and meditation and a tiny bit of Torah. And that's right. the... It's open to, is it open to the public? It's open to the public. Right. So we can put a link to it and also to the, to the Friday night services on the, on the website supporting the podcast. I th- and I've seen others of our colleagues that have done the same. I think that, I think that self-compassion is so important here. Like if you're beating yourself up about not practicing, like this is the moment to, if you possibly can, just to set that aside and wave to it and, and return to the practice or, you know, or, and, or tune into CBH's moment or someone else's or, you know, or whatever teacher you want, like this is, this is the moment to support yourself rather than to beat yourself up. So on the, uh, 
way into my office or my door it used to be and now it's when you kind of walk in you see it first um is a just a quote from the desiderata which um says be gentle with yourself you are no less than a child of the universe you know and it continues and i want everyone who actually enters into my office and god willing um they'll be entering back into my office soon god to willing. know that this is a space where the invitation is to be gentle with yourself Right. Um, and that's a lot, uh, you know, so this idea of self-compassion to me feels indispensable with how, even in this time, um, I want the clergy and the group to know that. I want our congregants to know that we are now balancing things and we're learning things that we didn't know. We're trying to adapt really quickly. And I would even extend that if we can at first be gentle with ourselves and there's the invitation to be gentle with others and that right. this is the time um, for gentleness in the wiry, angsty energy that is so understandable. I think it's so essential because there's such a risk, I think, about the death of compassion. I have an op-ed that just um, posted today that, that that's, that's one of the major points I make, that there is such an impulse with that term social distancing, and there's these efforts to both get people to adhere to it, but to understand that it's more about physical distancing and not actually about social disconnection, that, you know, that there's a risk that, that especially with the propensity to to hoard food and to have to pull away that, that, that compassion shrivels along with the virus, you know? So like, I, you know, yes. I, it's, it's very important. So let's, um, let's, let's pivot a little bit and talk about, um, you, you know, you talked about being an out queer rabbi at the height of the AIDS crisis and then going and taking on this pulpit that you've been in for more than 20 years now of a synagogue that is, is the, um, the major address for reconstructionism in Atlanta. It's the only affiliated community. It serves a wide, it's I think a real beacon as a progressive synagogue in the area and, and, and serves a very diverse population and was founded as an LGBT, we didn't really say Q at that time, an LGBT synagogue so I, I wanted to ask you to reflect on, you know, if you think it's appropriate lessons from the AIDS crisis and how, you know, that is a, that's a pandemic that's actually not over yet and has Correct. claimed almost 40 million lives at this point. And there's, yeah. there's treatment, but not a vaccine and not a cure. So um, what can we raise up? What can we learn from? You know, there are two different ways that I think about it. You know, the first way is there was a tremendous amount of stigma and shame and that um, if we go back to Brene Brown, and now it's on me, um, you know, this whole idea of shame about there being something flawed within us, um, which is one of the worst, most toxic um, emotions. And I can even see um, this kind of shaming that is starting to happen now about people making choices or not making choices. And, you know, of course we want to invite a certain kind of restraint but there has to be ethical frameworks. And there has to be humanity put in the center. And there was a lot of ways where people's fear and people's anxiety um, made it, as you talked about, compassion shrivel up for people living with AIDS and, and HIV. And, uh, and for me, when our community, and, and I wasn't there, I, I, um, I was still in high school when our community was founded, the history of our community is, is that there was already a great deal of stigma. The Atlanta 
synagogue council disbanded over the question about whether to admit us. Mm. And so short, wow. shortly after um, Beit Chavarim was founded, which was when GRID was just being talked about in the mid 80s, early mm. mid 80s, um, the AIDS epidemic really started taking off in the late 80s and the mid 90s. And so as an emerging synagogue, they had so much to deal with and they chose to create for lack of a better word, a ministry to people living with AIDS and HIV called AIDS Chaim. Mm. And so I think about the people today. AIDS, who, AIDS Chaim? Yes. Like, so the pun on AIDS Chaim, a tree of life, but AIDS instead of AIDS. Wow. Oh, wow. Yes. It's great. No, yeah. And thank you for, for picking that up. And, and, you know, so I think about today where people are dropping off groceries or finding ways to still bring the needs to the homeless for us to really kind of grapple with who is most vulnerable in this moment and not to ignore them out of the fear of our own needs feels incredibly important, um, important lesson. And then I think that there's a, a certain kind of um, resilience that gets built. You know, when I think about um, how, you know, I did have questions all throughout rabbinical school about, you know, what my response to loss was going to be, as you mentioned earlier. And then I realized that while most of my friends in their 20s were going to weddings and celebrating the births of children, I um, was doing funerals and going to funerals. And um, one of the first weddings that I officiated as a rabbinical student was in hospice. Mm. And so... Um, it helps you understand what is essential. I, I, was, I was with a group of rabbis teaching and Rabbi Rachel Timoner was sharing about that perhaps this is a time where the invitation is to really sit with what is most essential. And I think that's really where we were during um, the AIDS epidemic is really looking and understanding that social connection and that um, countering isolation was crucial and that we would lose our souls if we didn't find ways to accompany people uh, in those times. And, um, and that I think it also taught us that regardless of where we were to be able to uplift what we believe to be the moral values when the rest of the world turned their back or, or said that that actually was not the moral value. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, these are the kinds of lessons that we can draw from and that, you know, understandably as human beings, we are scared of illness and mortality. And um, there is still beauty in, um, in these moments as painful as they are and to be able to, to claim them and not to just have to see life in gray monotone because um, we are living in a time of pandemic also felt really important. There was a tremendous amount of trying to find joy as a sense of resistance. So and I, I know um, your congregation where your extraordinary choir performs, you often, they hold up signs, one of which is joy is resistance, right? Yeah, That's joy like, is an act of resistance. Joy is an yeah. act of resistance. That's one of, one of your taglines. I just want to say you shared that you feel like finding the still small voice in the whirlwind is one of your core teachings. And I just want to share that. I think mine and you helped me learn this is that, you know, they, they, there's a, there's the, the joke that 
every rabbi has the same sermon that they just give over and over. And mine is about choosing life. Uh, mm. And that, you know, that verse from Deuteronomy, I set before you life and death, blessing and curse, therefore choose life so that you and your seed may live, you and your descendants may live. And I think for me, when we first met back when we were, you know, in our 20s, I think the huge thing that I had to learn was that, yes, I was going to lose. Like, if I gave my heart away to people, I was going to lose them. I was going to encounter loss. And that the way to navigate that was not to shut myself off, close myself off and protect myself, but to love deeply and to know that I'll feel the loss, that that's going to make me feel more alive rather than less. And so that's been my huge, my, my huge teaching and trying to live it again and again. And I remember when we graduated, you gave me a very beautiful, um, like a calligraphed piece of art with that, that I still have um, with, with mm. that verse on it. So I feel like that's the, at the heart of this um, podcast and that, that is a, an incredibly important learning to raise up. That's what our tradition, that's what our ancestors taught us again and again. And even mm. in the hardest times, there is a commandment to, to find the joy, to find the connection, to find the love, to choose life, to act out those values that will be life-affirming. So I, I, I love that you just shared this with me. It gives me chills a little bit because the first Shabbat that I led was with that Torah portion at Beit Chavirim. And so in a lot of ways, I, that's my anniversary rabbinic um, Torah portion. And it has meant a great deal to me. And there's a way where I've been teaching with my community what I call a Kosi Revaya practice. Mm-hmm. You know, that I believe, I've been telling people that we have to um, grieve all the little losses. And so Kosi Revaya, which means our cup is full, is is that when we grieve those losses, that cup can hold all of those little losses alongside even the big ones as well. But it's that same cup that when it flows Mm -hmm. will be the cup of gratitude. It will be the cup of joy. And so I invite us to actually chant those words with attention to our grief. And then I invite us to chant those words with an attention to our gratitude and our joy. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So we have to wind up because I don't want to. I don't want to keep people on too long. But that's a great place to end. Is that I love that we end with chanting, and I just want to let folks know. And we'll put a link on the on the website that supports this in the show notes. Um, that Congregation Beit Chaverim has an incredible musical lineage, like that music infuses. The congregation and there's this extraordinary choir with with uh, instrumental accompaniment, and they have several um, CDs. Um, and you can can you download as, as well? Or? Yes, you can download everything. And you know, one of the incredible things is is that singing has been our way to kind of express so many of the emotions. It is it allows things to move and to flow, and so we have a lot of different kinds of CDs. And our lay cantor. Um, Gayan Garen also has a chant CD. And what our community often says is that in times of trial or in times of celebration, they use our music as a way to support them. And I hope it's something that can support others. Absolutely. So and I really want to call people's attention to that. And maybe we'll, maybe we'll do another uh, podcast just kind of focusing in on that and maybe bring Gayan or Will and, and your collaborators there in on that conversation. 
But at this point, I think it's time for us to, to wrap up. I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Joshua Lesser, for our really rich conversation on, on um, finding stillness and wisdom and clarity and even joy in these really turbulent moments. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks so much. For more information uh, on, on everything we've discussed, I want to encourage you to look on Hashivenu's website, which is hashivenu.fireside.fm. And you can also find more resources on reconstructingjudaism.org, including how to link to Congregation Beit Havarim's live stream services. And, and, and you can find um, incredible resources on the pandemic and on other topics as well on ritualwell.org. And if you would, please also subscribe and rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and you've been listening to Hashi Venu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience. Hashi